Good morning, everyone. My name is Caitlin Yeager. I'm the Director of Heritage Programs for Missouri Humanities, and our mission is to enrich lives and strengthen communities by connecting Missourians with the people, places, and ideas that shape our society. Thank you so much for joining us for today for Chapter 2 of our Explore Missouri's German Heritage series, an eight-part series that delves into each chapter of the book of the same title by W. Arthur Mehrhoff. The series will continue every second Thursday of the month at 10 a.m. from now until April. The book is available for purchase as well. I'll be posting that link to buy the book in the chat box on Zoom and in the comments on the Facebook Live video. They are $25 each and all proceeds will help us to continue to bring free public programs such as these to Missourians. Whether you're joining us through Zoom or watching on Facebook Live, we invite you to interact with us throughout the program. If you're on Facebook, feel free to comment to let us know you're watching or to ask questions for us to consider. If you're on Zoom, feel free to use um, the chat feature or the Q&A feature to submit questions throughout the program and we'll address as many as possible throughout the next hour. If you enjoy our program today and are interested in seeing more from Missouri Humanities, please check us out on Facebook or on our website for the most up-to-date information about our events. We also have a membership program where benefits include free books, discounted tickets to special programs, and access to members-only events. To become a member, visit www.mohumanities.org and click the Donate tab. After our program today, I'll be sending everyone an email with a link to our program survey. I would really appreciate it if you could all take some time to let us know what you thought about the presentation. These surveys are really important to us as we continue to bring public programming to Missourians and work toward a more thoughtful, informed, and civil society. Now, with all that said and done, I'd like to turn this over to my co-host for this eight-part program series, the author of the, pub, pub, uh, the publication, <laughs> Dr. Arthur Merhoff, and he will introduce our special guest today. Arthur, take it away. I'm unmuted, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, well, that makes it easier. <clears throat> I am Arthur Merhoff, and uh, um, we keep using that term, author of the publication. I'm the author of the publication, but it's, it is very much a collaborative effort. I want to continually emphasize that. And in fact, we'll even prove that point uh, this morning with our, our guest as well. And uh, just a little bit of background, in, in case you were not here last time, and it, it ain't all about me, but um, I think it's valuable to at least know who your wilderness guide is as you enter some new territory. Um, w. Arthur Merhoff, I'm, uh, have a PhD in American studies, American culture studies from St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I worked as a museum educator and uh, involved in historic preservation and uh, tourism development, community tourism development um, over a long period of time. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, <clears throat> I just, my particular emphasis in American culture studies, which many anthropologists study sort of small communities, think of Margaret Mead and Samoa, but it's a little bit harder to turn the lens on uh, one's own culture, but that's really what American culture studies tries to do. So my focus has been on American attitudes toward the natural environment, toward 
the land, if you will, and uh, in particular material culture studies, what our artifacts tell us about um, ourselves. As one cultural historian used the phrase, the beer can by the highway is pretty much you know, explains American culture, if you think about that. But uh, <clears throat> I also worked as a museum educator at the Gateway Arch, um, Jefferson National Expansion Memorial in St. Louis, and also for 10 years as the museum coordinator or educator, um, academic coordinator at the Museum of Arts and Archaeology in Columbia, Missouri. And that's where I got involved with Missouri Humanities and its German Heritage Initiative and um, participated in the um, steering committee, planning committee, if you will, that uh, was involved in helping to guide that effort. And also in a, some very important academic symposia or um, not even academic, but symposia combining academics and professionals um, in that particular field and tr trying to bring together, if you will, sort of the academic and the applied aspects of how do we understand Missouri's German heritage. If you look, there's a foreword by Dr. Steve Belko from the Missouri Humanities um, in the foreword of the uh, publication. And uh, I think he does a good job of giving you the orientation of how this project came about. So I was pleased and privileged enough to participate. And when I say I'm the author, but not the author, this was a very much a collaborative effort, has been and hopefully will continue to be um, as it spreads out throughout, not just the German Heritage Corridor, but I hope others will see their heritage, um, not just German heritage, and see this as a model for how we could, in fact, Kind of weave the past, present, and the future together. And that's how I got to know um, our, our guest this morning, um, Dr. Petra DeWitt. Um, DeWitt or DeWitt? How do you pronounce DeWitt. it? DeWitt. All right. DeWitt, yeah. All right. Um, anyway, I, I won't give you all of her background, but uh, she has participated in the steering committee and the scholarly symposia and uh, uh, as far as I know, still teaches at, uh, um, the, at uh, in Rolla at the Missouri State uh, School there. And I believe political science or is that still in? in history. I'm teaching history courses at Missouri s and the old UMR. So what I'd like to do at this time, since I've already kind of introduced um, Dr. DeVitt, is to ask her if she would just talk a little bit about um, her background as it relates to this Missouri's German heritage and uh, how you got involved in this particular initiative. Okay, um, I'm interested in the history of uh, German Americans because I'm an immigrant myself. I come directly from Germany. I arrived 35 years ago this year. <laughs> so um, I married uh, an American GI who was stationed over there and I followed him over here. Um, I became interested in the history of German Americans when I was doing my master's degree at Truman State. 
um, the books we were assigned to read about um, World War I history, uh, in essence said that German culture was exterminated. One book actually used that word, exterminated during World War I. Wow. And I said, no, 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 just go to Westphalia and Missouri, just go to Hermann and Missouri, go elsewhere, and people are still celebrating their German heritage. So what I then did for my dissertation, which eventually became a book, uh, was to study the impact of World War I on German Americans. And of course, I had to study the whole history of German Americans. So when uh, the Missouri Humanities approached me to participate in the German Heritage Corridor Initiative, that was a natural that I would say, of course, that I would uh, become part of that both as a historian and as a preserver of uh, artifacts. I've participated in a couple of the preservation events where um, we photograph uh, several artifacts, be it old certificates, be it letters, or any other artifacts that people bring to us, and we preserve them for the future generations. I, I do want to mention, if you look at the bibliography on page 147 of the Explore Missouri's German Heritage publication um, in this particular section, chapter two, that uh, um, Dr. DeWitt's, DeWitt's book, um, Degrees of Allegiance, is one of those uh, recommended or select bibliography. So uh, she's an ideal guest to uh, help us look at, if you will, the history of the arc of what's happened to Missouri's German her cultural heritage, but it's not extinct yet. No, no, not, <laughs> but not by any means, no. <laughs> well, um, Petra, you've, you've said a lot about your background and, and, and that really, it ties into this chapter so well, because uh, this chapter talks um, quite a bit about how conflict uh, and German Americans kind of intermingled in Missouri history. Um, so kind of to start us off, Arthur, um, orient us a little bit to this chapter. Um, touch on the writing process and how you decided to start off the book with um, this theme. And, and uh, if I'm correct, the, the title of the chapter is Marking the Spirit of the Times, correct? That is correct. That's All right. <laughs> Der Zeitgeist, I think, is what the, the, the mm -hmm. chapter title in German is. That's probably sure. the only one I'm gonna be able to pronounce, but uh, I'll try from here on out. Um, so yeah, Arthur, orient us a little bit to, to this chapter's theme and, and how um, you, you went about writing about this theme. <clears throat> it's what in classical mythology or, or Greek antiquity they would call in media race. We begin in the beginning and, uh, and the first essay looks at um, um, the statue of Alexander von Humboldt in Tower Grove Park and you wonder why there? Well, um, if you look at the arc of Missouri's German cultural heritage, it's kind of a, a meteoric ride, if you will, from immigration, if you will, the, the origins, primarily in the 1830s and 40s, um, and then reaching kind of a crescendo uh, with the Civil War and after. And then uh, World War I changes everything and then finally, after a period of, if not quite extinction, at least uh, um, suppression, that really since the 
perhaps late 60s, maybe 70s. Um, there's been a, a gradual and I think important revival of interest in Missouri's German heritage. That was basically the um, premise or the theme that emerged from some of these uh, workshops that we participated in uh, back, what, two, three years ago. Um, kind of lost track of time, but you know, why should I be different than anybody else? And uh, <clears throat> there were a number of historians, including Dr. DeWitt, on, uh, who participated in this, and there was a real strong emphasis on this, what historians might call periodicity. Um, are there distinct periods in Missouri's German cultural heritage? And we believe there is, or it seemed to emerge that way. So partly as a tip of the cap to the, uh, um, all the historians there, but also because that arc, if you will, that uh, whether it's the periods or in a narrative arc, it's kind of like a, a rags to riches to rags story. And hopefully now, uh, if not riches, at least resurgence. And so uh, um, using a couple of those humanities themes, I decided well, let's try it out um, and see how it applies to cultural artifacts. And again, as I mentioned last time, history is everything that ever happened, okay? So we have to sort out. We have to um, stand somewhere. And so the using the approach of artifact analysis, choosing some key artifacts that provide, if you will, dense facts. Think of Ken Burns' great documentary on Brooklyn Bridge. You know, it brings so many things together. And that's really what uh, we're trying to do here. It's modeled, since I was working as an academic coordinator at the museum, upon Neil McGregor's famous book, um, The World in 100 Objects. It's based upon his efforts at the British Museum. Um, to, okay, <laughs> how are we, you know, how do we make sense of all this? Well, we can't write about everything. So let's look at key artifacts from their collection. And uh, so the idea was, okay, <laughs> I've got about 150 pages to tell this story. So how do we do it? And uh, we better go in deeply into a few key things rather than try and tell the entire story. And so that's why starting out looking at the history, um, which I think reflects the efforts of the symposium, the steering committee, but also I think uh, using some key objects or artifacts that to me, you know, a monument to bring to mind is, is the Latin phrase, and that's what it does. And with the Humboldt statue, um, he went from cultural hero, not just for Germans, but really he was a worldwide, he was a rock star. Um, and now his star is ascendant again. So, uh, um, but after, for a period of time, that monument was neglected, vandalized, and, not, and has been subsequently uh, restored. And now people are paying attention to Alexander von Humboldt in a very big way. And I hope that the same arc uh, applies to Missouri's German heritage. Yeah, and I think too, um, you know, as we were kind of going over a lot of these themes, because there's, you know, each chapter is a theme, but then of course inside the chapter is more themes. And, you know, <laughs> one of the big ones that, you know, the three of us were discussing as we were preparing for today 
um, is the idea of of cultural authenticity and 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 how to maintain one's culture you know, through conflict, um, especially when you know the conflicts we're talking about included having Germans on the on the opposition and in a very big way. You know, there was there was this. You know, as Petra said, when she was studying, they used the term extermination. Um, you know, that's how, 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 how much of an impact, you know, these world wars had on German cultural heritage, not just in Missouri, but nationwide. Um, so we came up with these, I guess, four stages of German culture in Missouri. We had this development period, you know, when, when German immigrants were coming into Missouri and really developing that culture, starting businesses, um, you know, and, and it maturing, um, and that maturity, we were saying, kind of peaked right before World War One, and then as World War One started, and then the in between, and then World War Two, we get this um, this assimilation or this kind of going into hiding. You know, I'm not sure what the best term for it is. You know, I, I think extermination, like Petra said, is a bit extreme. Um, yeah, I'd say it went into the underground. Into the underground. Mm -hmm. Uh, right, and then and then eventually, you know, this resurgence. So, um, you know, talk a little bit. I think, um, you know, and I think both of you obviously have, have have ideas to contribute to this, but um, kind of the the development of those four stages and how you know various conflicts attributed to those. Um, so, whoever wants to kind of give us their thoughts on that. <laughs> I mean, I, I can I can start off, give Arthur a little break here, um, <laughs> but you can chime in anytime you want to. Um, and we have these two or three major waves of immigrants coming in during the early 1800s. So we start in the late 1820s with the first ones who are making Missouri their home. They're sending reports home to Germany. They publish books. You then have a, waves, uh, a wave in the 1830s uh, because the economy is very bad over in, uh, in the German states. We have to remember there is not yet a Germany. There are German principalities. And people come from a variety of regions based on economic, primarily economic reasons. You have some coming from Bavaria. You have some coming from uh, Westphalia. You have others coming from Prussia and uh, they are beginning to settle in areas along the Missouri River, what we today can, uh, define as that uh, heritage corridor. Then you have another wave coming in the 1840s and early 1850s, the so-called 48ers, who were part of a revolution uh, in, uh, in, in the German states. And now you have others coming from Baden, for example. I'm thinking of uh, Franz Siegel, Karl Schwartz, uh, so they're coming yet again from another different Germanic um, uh, region. So you have this hodgepodge of Germanic people coming to Missouri. But then in the second um, time period after the American Civil War, they become German. They weren't, they did not necessarily call themselves Germans previously, but they become Germans after the American Civil War. They have contributed to the American Civil War. They fought on the side of the Union. Uh, indeed, they were instrumental in assuring that Missouri would stay in the Union. They prevented Confederates from gaining control over the arsenal in uh, St. Louis at Camp Jackson. And uh, they were very much outspoken abolitionists in opposition to slavery. 
They were not necessarily advocates for racial equality, but they were definitely against slavery. They associated slavery with um, despotism, with serfdom. So they were opposed to that in Europe. And of course, they are going to be opposed here. So it's this age of maturity when you really have major businesses coming to the forefront, being run by these Germans. And of course, beer always comes to mind first, right? <laughs> That's at least the, the reference that I make to, to my students here. <laughs> um, uh, so you have Anheuser-Busch, for example, becoming a major company. Um, this is the height of, of this time period between the American Civil War and World War I is the height of German community, as you pointed out, Arthur. This is when it's the strongest. Um, students are still learning German in, in schools. If you go to church, be it Catholic church, be it whatever Protestant um, faith you belong to, you hear your sermons in German, right? Um, Lutheran ministers in, indeed argued the only way you can really understand the, God, uh, the word of God is if you hear it in the German language, that there would be something lost in translation, right? <laughs> when it goes over to English. So- I have to, I have to, I have to add that uh, in, in our family, um, God, the phrase was God's first words were Adam, wo bist du? So <laughs> this was really the height but we see something changing by the turn of the century. Uh, and, and that change will really go into overdrive when we have World War I coming about. Um, because you have individuals like uh, the future president Theodore Roosevelt arguing about 100% uh, Americanism. So there is a nativist kind of nationalist movement happening by 1900. And uh, the German people, the German Americans, they've been here now for three generations. They, they still speak German. Um, they've been very much integrated into American society. They very much believe in the right to vote, be participants in the political process. But there is also a parallel to that, this, this nativist nationalist movement beginning to develop. And it will go into overdrive during World War One. Okay, so um, it's it's so that was the second phase, this maturity phase, and then we have this attack, in essence, this harassment of German Americanness during World War One. Uh, in part, this grows regionally, locally. Um, but also it is being agitated by government legislation, by government action. Indeed, when we, the United States, do not participate in World War I until 1917, right? Uh, so um, very much three years into the war is when we finally get pulled into it even though there had been agitation to get used to uh, get involved uh, previously, but we're still sticking to the Monroe Doctrine. As long as you're not involved in our affairs, we will not be involved in your affairs in Europe, right? But once we get closer to the war, already in 1916, during the presidential election, 
Americanism is being discussed. Who is a true American? Who is not a true American? So that is part and parcel of the presidential campaign already. So once we then finally enter the war, government institutions like the Committee on Public Information create a propaganda well, they called an education campaign. <laughs> Today, we call that a propaganda campaign, right? Um, that, on. <laughs> yeah, that defines anything associated with the enemy, Germany, as being bad and anti-American, right? So while initially that education campaign talks about what is bad about militarism, what is bad about the Kaiser, that then very quickly translates in the United States on the home front into why are you still publishing newspapers in German? Are you hiding things? Are you plotting with the German enemy to invade the United States? Are you going to um, share some kind of secrets that you have learned about the United States with the German enemy? You need to publish this all in English or you need to um, through the Trading with the Enemy Act, need to file a translation with your local postmaster, right? So you have this pressure, this push to demonstrate your Americanism. And if you're not 100% American, then you must be supporting the enemy. You can't be somewhere in between, right? You can't live in a gray area, if you want to call it that, right? And um, immediately a cartoon comes to mind from uh, one of the St. Louis uh, newspapers where you see a German newspaper, you have a little snake with the Prussian military helmet on it, and then you have a foot with 100% Americanism stomping down on the snake on the newspaper, right? So very graphic messages to everybody who reads the newspaper that German needs to disappear in the United States. So a lot of people felt that pressure to no longer speak German, no longer subscribe to the German language newspapers. It didn't prevent them from speaking German in the home, right? It didn't prevent them from, from maintaining their holiday practices, like don't open the presents on December the 25th, but do it on the evening of December the 24th, right? That's the German way of doing things. Um, so you're, you're still maintaining some of these habits, but it's in the privacy of your home. It's no longer out in public, right? And uh, of course you have tandem to this all happening. Also a prohibitionist movement growing, it started in the late, late 1900s as a temperance movement. In other words, temper yourself, control yourself to alcoholic consumption. But by the 19-teens, that had developed into a full-blown-out prohibitionist movement. And who were the people who were most open about their consumption of alcohol, especially on Sunday afternoon in the beer garden? right? So they become the natural targets of that prohibitionist movement at the very same time, as they're also being told, speak in English. Get rid of the German. 
the temperance movement it called itself 100% Americanism. I also wanted to mention that um, if you, in the publication, Missouri Life and our graphic designers did a great job of adding those, those kinds of images that uh, um, Petra just alluded to. So uh, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words and there are a couple in there that uh, will definitely uh, grab your attention. Mm-hmm. Which having, you know, having an historian here makes my job so much easier. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, and it's a mark of respect that they're, they're much better historians than I to, uh, to, to call upon. And uh, what I always tried to do was to try and provide some, some context, some, you know, culture, if you will, there's no one definition of culture. I think anthropologists or social scientists have something like 70 or 69 different operational different definitions of culture and authenticity is the same way. But basically culture is how a group, whether it's Samoan islands or um, a big industrial society, structures the world, the view of the world, whether it's your whole collection of symbols or whether it's your whole way of life and language is a big part of that um, as, as Ludwig Wittgenstein pointed out we basically live in different language worlds and who controls the language has has a lot to say about whose world it is so, um, one reason why we call this chapter um, the zeitgeist it's a very much a German romantic term from the turn of the 19th century, the spirit of the times. And I think it's, it's valuable to note that um, Petra, if I, if I may refer to her as Petra, um, talked about, <clears throat> you know, they did, came over as members of different regions, but there was this strong spirit of the times, the zeitgeist of a rising nationalism. And especially if, you know, you were a, a peasant or a, a struggling um, artisan in somebody's fiefdom, some feudal little lord, um, arbitrary rule, the idea of having some sort of a strong national government, and they'd seen it with Napoleon and how the uh, you know, the, the laws and courts and administration was regulated. So there was an appeal of that kind of nationalism and national identity. And those 48ers that she talked about, I think very much brought that spirit of the times with them to America. And then following the Civil War, people like um, the Roblings who built the Brooklyn Bridge or um, in my hometown, St. Louis, I lived on Flat Avenue. Henry Flad was the chief engineer for Eads Bridge mm-hmm. and um, an American of German descent. And this, this nation building and railroad building uh, were seen very much in those terms. So uh, it's, it's very much a part of the, rise, you know, the rising tide of nationalism. And uh, um, Germans, contributed vitally to that. You mentioned some big names there. Um, and so by the turn of the 20th century, German American culture posed a genuine cultural alternative to, if you will, sort of the, the traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Anglo you know, heritage 
And people didn't always take kindly to that. And in fact, Theodore Roosevelt, good old Teddy Roosevelt, one of my heroes about uh, the national parks, um, spoke very much against what he called hyphenated Americans during the First World War or the run up to it. So that struggle over who is an American um, wasn't, it's not just contemporary newspaper headlines. It's been going on for some time. And the question of authenticity very often depends upon um, who's, in, who's in power, who's in charge. And, you know, look at, I also want to mention the example of uh, Hamburg, Missouri. Um, World War II, I don't think there was much discussion that you know Hitler and Nazism were bad, and uh, you know my my family, the Hirschhausens and Sickmans and Merhoffs, etc., all went off to war and came back as you know good old GIs, and you know um, I'm one of the results of that um, post-war you know phenomenon. But <clears throat> Hamburg was a German town uh, near Highway 94. And basically, the uh, Department of Defense claimed it, wiped it off the map, and built a munitions um, factory there. And it's it's odd to go back to a Hamburg alumni reunion or a uh, town festival for a place that no longer exists. So, it, you know, not cultural extinction. The memories there, the people still celebrate it. But like you said. It's, it's a very much a private, familial um, kind of celebration. So um, you did a great job of summarizing in, in a few, in a really short period of time, a lot of history. Yeah, we, we do a lot of things in the name of conflict and coming out as victors, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we don't necessarily debate what the long-term outcome is going to be because we react on the spur of the moment but then it is up to us historians to think about the past as we are evaluating it and um, hopefully teach some lessons to be learned for the future and not to make the same mistakes again so we have a couple comments and questions um, kind of to, to the current conversation one is a comment from angela who says her great-grandmother, born in 1899 in Dutzau, Missouri, which is um, one of the first uh, German-settled communities in Missouri, actually. Um, her great-grandmother spoke of this elimination of things following World War I. She said the German newspapers in Missouri were wiped out, and then she says she would make a movement with her hands, and her tone was stern, not something grandma would do often. She'd also tell of only being able to speak German before lunch in school, and that otherwise they were punished. Um, so that's a, you know, we... I think it's it's so important to have those personal stories from you know from attendees from some of these presentations because you know it's one thing to have a professor or a, a panelist you know dictate history to you it's another thing to have one of our um, one of our attendees tell us a personal story um, and that's that really brings it to a new light um, and, and I think what's also really important to to note here is that these um, these shifts. In, in, in cultural or in, in outward you know, expressions of culture or um, activity, it, it's not hundreds of years ago. It's not something that 
we can just read about in history books. There are people alive today that remember um, this stuff or, or one generation removed. Um, you know, we we take it upon ourselves as the Missouri Humanities Council to try and document the stories while we still can. Um, our oral historian that we share with, uh, with the State Historical Society, Sean, one of the projects between the two organizations is to document oral histories of people who have um, these stories of seeing this shift firsthand um, and remembering when all of a sudden they weren't teaching German in school, remembering that, you know, their mother said, make sure you don't speak German, you know, outside of the home. And, um, and, and something that I think, you know, we, we kind of touched on when we were, you know, discussing this chapter is that um, this, this shift and this kind of, you know, banning of German culture is, is a little bit more prevalent in bigger cities. Um, you know, places like St. Louis that had a bigger population, a more dense population, and a more mixed population of ethnicities um, you know, it was a little bit more, I would say, obvious that they were trying to, to hide Germanness. But when you were in a community, um, maybe in, in a more rural area that was more concentrated German, you, know, you might you might be more careful out in public, but it was it was a little bit a little bit more, I think, comfortable to express your Germanness because you knew that you were among friends. Um, and I think that's an important distinction that there was a, a big difference between, you know, those that lived in a city versus out in rural Missouri. Well, as, as an urbanist, I can speak to that. Um, sociologist Robert Park from the University of Chicago back at the turn of the century coined the term invasion and succession. He looked at the struggle in Chicago, his, his home, you know, where he was living, as a struggle between different ethnic groups for um, access to resources, for political power, turf, if you will. And it plays out in you know, a neighborhood changes, for example, you know, um, maybe it's one group and then another group starts moving in. So the city is this constant clash of ideas. It's, it's, I think it's more open to change simply because it's based upon um, such strong market forces that have to be uh, open to innovation. Smaller towns, perhaps not so much that, uh, you know, you can, you know, there may be just the background is a strong ethnic heritage and, and most people who live there maybe share that, maybe even familial or clan relationships. So I, I think there's a lot um, to that. This, you know, the stresses that came in living in a big city. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and when you look in St. Louis, you actually see the Germans arrive in very particular wards that they live in initially. But then as they are economically succeeding, they're moving further and further westward away from um, what we call downtown today, right? So they're beginning to move outward. And as they are beginning to move outward, they become also more Americanized in their actions, in their political behavior. They need to fit in to be economically successful, right? Whereas Herman is totally different, right? Herman is entirely made up of Germans and subsequently German Americans. And what is so interesting there during World War I is that German Americans are in charge of the local government, right? And it is the sister of the mayor who goes out to, 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 to 
encourage her fellow German Americans to be more American, to not outwardly be opposed to the war, to you know put enough money to buy liberty loan bonds, to uh, buy war saving stamps, and so on. And she's at the forefront of trying to demonstrate that these German Americans are really 100% Americans, right? So uh, it's, it's that internal community leadership that is trying to demonstrate that we are Americans, even though we're also Germans at the same time, right? So demonstrate our Americanness, do what we need to do, then they will leave us alone and we can go back to reading our German newspaper, the advertiser, no, not the advertiser, Kurt, the Volksblatt. And it actually survives into the 1920s. Um, in St. Louis, the Westliche Post survives into the 1930s, okay? So they're not immediately wiped out, but because more and more people do convert over to the English or American language, the subscriptions begin to decline, and that is then the reason why the newspapers uh, go away. Okay, I never thought of it that way. About people weren't speaking German as much, therefore, even if there was a German newspaper, their readership would have been lower. That's an interesting point. Yeah, um, and that relates very well to something you said last time, um, Caitlin, about uh, you had the sense that there was a lot of you know, a lot of history underfoot that you just didn't recognize or didn't sort of come, you know, come to the forefront. I think the Camp Jackson incident uh, or that sign is a good example of that. But uh, my experience and that of Petra's are, are kind of instructive because they're very different. I'm a child of one of those uh, GIs, you know, fought in World War One. World War II, excuse me. <laughs> I'm not that old, sorry. <laughs> but, um, um, <clears throat> you know, it's partly the sense of, you know, we don't want to push our Germanness, but it was also um, the rise of mass society. It wasn't just yeah. Germans who were losing their ethnic identity. Um, you know, it was the melting pot. It was the period of, of Mad Men, if you watch that TV program, of mass consumption society. Um, and I think that there was an attempt to create kind of a, a standardized American culture. And so ethnicity in the form of Germanness, um, you know, it had already been under some stress and, you know, it went through this sort of universal solvent. And it really wasn't, for me at least, until the 1970s, um, the bicentennial doing the roots, if you remember Alex Haley's famous program, um, it affected not just Americans of African descent, but a lot of people started taking their roots more seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bicentennial, I think, encouraged that uh, historic preservation. And Missouri's German wineries, uh, especially in Augusta and Herman, had, al had already started to um, go through their revitalization. So there was, if you will, kind of a focal point for some of that which uh, that's kind of where I cut my teeth, uh, besides in St. Louis, uh, going to Herman, driving along 94 on a beautiful autumn day. Uh, that became kind of a little um, pilgrimage, almost like uh, you know, a medieval pilgrim looking for a piece of the true cross. We're looking for cultural authenticity. We're looking for you know, 
some some really good wine on a beautiful fall afternoon and uh, you know it's it's evolved since then uh, and part of what this effort is is an attempt to create some balance if you will um, <clears throat> You know, there are plenty of things about my German heritage I don't celebrate, and uh, I'm sure that's true of just about, you know, everybody, but uh, what's worth keeping? That's really what we're talking about here. What's worth keeping? What are the heirlooms that can help us all, you know, to survive and prosper? <laughs> you know, we kind of need to take that seriously now. So, um a few more really great comments. Um, a, one that has a two-part question, the other are some, some personal family experiences and other comments. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'm gonna take your cue, Arthur, and talk about this whole idea of what's worth saving, um, what's worth remembering. So Kathy Schopenhorst, who we all know, hi Kathy. <laughs> um, Der Friedensgott was published in German in Missouri until 1958. It was the newspaper of the German Evangelical Church. Um, so 1958, that seems to me that that's, pretty, that's a pretty late, kind of cut off for no longer having a German newspaper that they lasted quite a while. Um, someone, a uh, friend says her in-laws family is from rural St. Charles County and said they, they faced a lot less of that discrimination since the area was so populated with Germans. So that's, you know, an example of what we were kind of hypothesizing, which is that, you know, you might be didn't feel that discrimination as much if you were in a more heavily German populated area. Um, and rural St. Charles County is, is a very densely German populated area. Um, Teresa has quite a few uh, personal anecdotes. Um, she says there's a Kill the Hun poster in Herman's Deutschheim or the Pershing Museum. It was hidden near a bathroom five or so years ago. Um, her great uncle began school during World War II and was hit with a stick when he spoke German, which was the only language he knew. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's poignant. You know, what do you do when that's the only language you know? You, you might have learned a little bit of English, but that's your first language. It would be like, asking us to, to speak the language that we took for a few years in high school. You know, it's, it's just not, not, you know, something we can do easily. Um, and so that he told her later in life after she majored in German. Um, at Schubert's St. John Lutheran Church, there were agents outside listening during World War I. Um, German Americans were discriminated against. And there was a Missouri decree during World War I and World War II for not speaking German. And yes, that's correct. There was an official um, decree that said that you, it was banned uh, to speak German in public and that her grandparents were considered traitors for speaking their native language. Um, so very uh, real life, very poignant examples of, of some of the discrimination Germans faced during, um, during this really tumultuous time. Um, Teresa also has a couple questions. She says, one side of my family immigrated to Missouri from southern Germany between 1852 and 1890. I learned in Missouri museums that there were two reasons for opposition to slavery. So this is kind of calling back on something that uh, Petra touched on earlier, which was that, um, you know, more often than not, Germans were pretty staunch abolitionists, but not necessarily for racial equality. So, and this, this might lead into that, which is her question is one, that the more educated opposed it based on human rights, and two, farmers opposed it based on the fact that it made competitive prices difficult because they paid their labor. Um, Petra, you're nodding your head. So she asks if this is correct. So you want to comment? That, that is absolutely correct. Yes, absolutely. So you have individuals like Carl Schwartz, uh, well-educated newspaper man, eventually Secretary of Interior for the United States. He is very much opposed to slavery based on ideological terms, that this is just plain inhumane, that you should not have, an, should not own another human being. 
right? Whereas if you're talking about your ordinary farmer who may have uh, bought 40 acres or, or something like that, uh, they are competing with other farmers, right? Uh, and there were actually statistical evaluations published in the 1840s newspapers that if you owned one slave, you on average had a profit that was 40% higher than if you worked for yourself. And they already understood that in the 1840s, 1850s, and they published that information in the newspapers. So you as a farmer would have looked upon this as a serious competitive institution, perhaps not necessarily looked upon this as inhumane, but you looked at your bottom line and you said, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanna take this opportunity, um, actually, hold on, someone just gave us a comment. Um, they're from Iowa and she doesn't know if uh, her great grandfather was fluent in German, but he always said the table prayer in German at family gatherings. His grandson learned it, and then she still requests he say it to keep the tradition alive. So great example of, of maintaining that cultural heritage and, and what I think Arthur touched on that um, just because it's not out in the open doesn't mean that the culture is not there. Um, and that's a prime example of that. Um, but we've talked um, a lot about kind of the, the, the assimilation, acculturation um, that, that Germans faced, but I want to switch gears here to this um, the shift towards the resurgence. So we have several decades between uh, the end of World War II and when I think Arthur and Petra, we were talking about maybe 70s and 80s is when we start to see a shift towards, you know, starting to re-celebrate Germanness. Um, so talk a little bit about, um, about that shift and what that looked like. How, um, how did we transition from all that we just talked about to being able to celebrate German culture? Um, such as Germans' contributions to Missouri's development. We talked so much about Germans' role in Missouri political life, lots of German governors and senators and legislators, um, you know, contributions to industry, to business. Um, so how do we get to where we are today um, where we can talk about how important Germans are to our state without being called, you know, a sympathizer or a traitor? Um, you know, and I, I say that, you know, everyone says, I guess, that time heals all wounds, but, but what was it that started the healing process. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. I, if, if I may step in here before Arthur, <laughs> uh, I think it had a lot to do with um, the 1960s when historians are beginning to write in more depth about the con uh, contributions by immigrants to the United States, not just the Germans, um, uh, but uh, by Scandinavians as well by African-Americans, um, by all kinds of other groups, how they have uh, contributed uh, to American society. We also begin to change our immigration laws, being much more open to allowing Asians and um, Latin, Latin Americans uh, to come into uh, the United States. It's the very same decade where we have that major immigration law change, right? So we're becoming more aware of our ethnic diversity. Um, his name escapes me right now, but he was um, Speaker of the House at one point, and he had actually issued a major study of our ethnic diversity and how we had been not necessarily a melting pot, but that American society rep represented um, 
great diversity. Um, so we're becoming much more aware of that diversity in the United States in the 1960s and definitely in the early 1970s. Okay, so I think that is one of the major reasons. Once we begin to talk about our diversity, you then begin to demonstrate where you come from. You become more aware of your roots, as you were saying, Arthur. So it's not a coincidence that roots comes out at that very same time period as we are talking more about our ethnic and racial diversity, as we are, in essence, telling all our different stories, how we are important segments within American society, right? So I believe that's why where it all begins. I, I would agree as far as the, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will, the, the 60s and the 70s brought about a different zeitgeist, a different spirit of the time. Those people like my parents who uh, went through the Depression and World War II, um, there was tremendous emphasis upon Americanism, Americanization, uh, national unity, a national system, because you needed it in order to survive, quite frankly. Um, perhaps it's a function of the great wealth that was generated, you know, after the Second World War, but um, there was there was leisure, there was more education and uh, um, the ability and interest in looking at different aspects of American life. So the shift sort of swung from the unum to the uh, e pluribus. And we do that all the time in American culture. I think that's part of what the uh, humanities uh, helps us to, to understand. But uh, um, so you, as you pointed out, the, the rise of and instead of great historical tomes that look at, you know, the main sweep of American history, there's a lot more interest in different cultures, you know, um, different ethnic groups, uh, more specialized kinds of studies, and uh, help to bring about, you know, a rising interest in ethnic identity. Think back to the films of the 70s, um, you know, The Godfather, The Godfather oh, too. yes, you know. absolutely. But I mean, it's a look into um, Italian-American culture. And so it wasn't just um, the German culture. Also, the United States had invested heavily in the Marshall Plan in helping to rebuild Germany. And I think there was also a recognition that um, <clears throat> you know, uh, we don't want to have the same thing happen that happened after World War I. And I think that, uh, and I also want to say that Germany, to its own credit, has taken, uh, in, in terms of interpreting its history, it, it hasn't uh, whitewashed it at all. I mean, it's, it's put it out there and uh, has, has also, I think, taken leadership in trying to, uh, um, you know, look at its response to the immigration crisis. So I mm -hmm. think that... Um, and I have to, there is a wonderful example, an artifact that I think illustrates what I'm, I'm all about here, that uh, the capital of the, the key building, the government building in Berlin, the Reichstag, was burned during the, the Nazi period of dominance, and it's been rebuilt. Um, award-winning design by Sir Norman Foster, a, 
a famous British architect. And so it, it restores that building, but um, people, um, you're able to walk around and look down upon the government. So it's not like you have to look up at government. And in the center, there's this dome and it's a symbol of, you know, it's commitment to solar energy. I mean, it's just one of the most incredible examples of one, respecting your past, but also looking um, into the future as well, interpreting that past. So the meanings of that experience have constantly changed. So I think that uh, um, it's less, well, you know, we've, we're removed from, you know, the smoldering ruins of World War II and um, things look different now. So I think that, uh, you know, that has contributed, I think to a sense that you know, we need all the help we can get to survive what, uh, what's happening now and to, to build a more healthy, robust, humane, inclusive society. So uh, um, we'll take it where we can get it. And I think Missouri's German heritage has a lot of, um, I call them heirloom seeds that I think still uh, have a lot of vitality. A few, um, a few more comments from some of our uh, attendees. Um, so a great example of people who kind of adapted, Germans who adapted to this ever changing period. Uh, Sherry's great grandmother dropped one of the ends at the end of the family's surname so it did not appear so German. Um, my, my last name, which is my married name, but um, is Jaeger, Y-A-G-E-R. That is not the way the Germans spell Jaeger. Um, it is very much an Americanized version of the word. Um, so that's a very common example is people trying to make their names appear more English. Um, let's see. Um, someone wants to know, uh, and I, I would be remiss uh, to not ask this just with uh, what we're talking about with Germans in, in political positions, um, the highest ranking U.S. political leader of German heritage. I mean, I would assume that we have a president somewhere down the line that is probably mostly German or very German. Um, I don't, I can't name one off the top of my head, but Henry Kissinger. I don't know how you could not. <laughs> Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State. Oh, well, I would think Dwight D. Eisenhower from uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania might qualify. Uh, he might qualify as a president, yeah, being of German-American heritage, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even Pershing has a German in his skeleton, a skeleton in his closet. <laughs> well, and one of our attendees, Krista, just, she said Eisenhower as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know how he would not be. Um, so, uh, so we've mentioned St. Louis as a German city. Um, Liz wants to know about German influencing in Kansas City, so our other big city in, in, Saint, in Missouri. Um, I know that they currently, I know that they have a German sister city, their Hanover, I think is their sister city. Um, I mean, I, I personally just, I, re I reference St. Louis because I'm from here, um, but uh, can either of you comment on Kansas City's uh, German heritage? Um, there are there were German uh, Germans and German Americans. They actually had a hospital that was called the German Research Hospital. So they had the German word in there. They actually got rid of it uh, during World War One. And um, uh, yes, St. Joseph also has has a sizable um, uh, German population. Nothing compared to St. Louis, but they were active. They owned businesses. 
they had uh, publications, newspapers, and um, uh, were active in their communities, active politicians. So, um, like I said, nothing compared to what, what existed in St. Louis, but they did have German communities. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to point out that the German Heritage Corridor primarily consists of 16 counties from, from St. Louis City um, toward um, Jefferson City and, and a little bit beyond. <clears throat> no disrespect to Kansas City. Um, as you know, Petra points out, there are these enclaves like uh, Concordia, Missouri that are strongly um, German, but they're kind of isolated spatially in turn, you know, if we look at the map, and, I, and again, as we pointed out last week, the concentration of um, Germans, you know, German Americans in this corridor, in the heart of the city along the Missouri River, um, was one of the reasons why the Civil War was so important because they represented, if you will, the sharp spear of abolition in the midst of what was a, just basically a slave state. Um, you know, I live in Little Dixie here in Columbia, so you, you get the idea that uh, it heightened those cultural um, challenges and tensions perhaps because of that spatial geographic um, element. Um, so I'm gonna let some more questions roll in as we, um as we go to kind of our last topic, which um, is going to go back to these monuments. So um, peppered throughout this chapter are various monuments in different forms. They're not all obelisks. They're not all bronze statues. We talk about street signs, um, churches, um, and, 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 and sites. So something that I would like to discuss is um, how these have aged over time. So just as an example, we've got the von Humboldt Memorial, which or monument, which Arthur touches on that went into kind of disrepair and was a bit neglected. And then kind of during this resurgence, it's now in great shape. Um, the street signs are a very interesting topic to bring up. And Arthur, I'll let you kind of talk about what's happened with the street signs. Um, but we've also had the Naked Truth Monument, which is um, a tribute to the editors of the Anziger. And, uh, and the Friedrich Hecker Monument. So, so the very, a lot of various monuments, you know, using a kind of a loose term of monument, uh, to, to various parts of German heritage in Missouri. So um, Arthur, talk a little bit about the monuments that you chose to feature here and how have they aged over time since, um, kind of since they were put there in the historical context of when they were erected versus, you know, writing this book and putting down your research for, for kind of each of these monuments. Well, they're not as shiny as they used to be, um, first of all, and uh, they get this patina of age, but they also get a patina of meaning and layers of meaning over time as well. And as we've seen that, uh, you know, like the hum von Humboldt statue um, was the cause of great celebration and uh, it represented the sort of peak influence of German culture, culture, if you will, um, on American life, and not just American life. I mean, this was, this was happening all over the world. Uh, so German culture was um, very important, but then I think because of the uh, um, 
the cultural challenges of World War One and Prohibition, and if you will, just a loss of historical memory um, on the part of American culture in a big way. Um, not just the Bob Germans, but uh, um, we kind of <laughs> lost our way a little bit, perhaps. Um, and so I, I chose that because to me, it was the most representative of this arc uh, that we talked about in terms of the rising and falling and, and hopefully now resurgence. The Italians have a wonderful word, risorgimento. And uh, I love that, but I don't know what the German equivalent is, but risorgimento just, I love to say it. And, uh, and so I hope that we have this resorgimento going on. Um, Camp Jackson, um, you can see the changes in the city. Um, you know, um, and it, I think St. Louis University has done a, a good job of trying to bring to mind, which is what that word monument really means in Latin, uh, mentis. So trying to bring to mind something happened here that we ought to pay attention to. If not with a big bronze statue, um, at least we can, and, you know, uh, the tip of the cap at least. And the challenge of the signs, you know, who, who decides what names, how we name something, uh, who, what name we give it and uh, what, you know, what it says about us. Um, that's, to me, that's very instructive that there's a challenge still going on here about, uh, you know, who, whose name we get to use. So it, if people don't see the connection to uh, contemporary America, you know, think, you know, think a little bit more deeply because uh, it's, it's always going on. This challenge of culture, whose reality is it, um, continues. And uh, I don't think we still, <laughs> I guess because we've seen too many um, statues and monuments that we've had to remove, that uh, we're probably less likely to put up a bronze statue of somebody now. But I think there are ways to commemorate, to share memory with, um, especially with new technologies. Um, Google Maps allows you to look at hundreds of years of a, a place like Camp Jackson, the area of Camp Jackson, just through you know Im, embedded maps in a in a Google Map system. So um, it doesn't always have to be in brick and mortar, or bronze and stone. And I think we need to explore some of those ways as we try and commemorate um, our heritage, so that it's more inclusive, if you will, that uh, other stories get to be told instead of just the one dominant um, story. Absolutely. Um, Kutcher, any, any contribution to that or final thoughts as we kind of wrap up here? Well, I was, I was thinking about the, the Naked Truth Monument. Uh, it is a, a monument to really two things. It is a monument to three men, three men <laughs> who were um, <clears throat> newspaper publishers, right? But it is also a monument to truth, that that reporting should be truthful. So it is a monument to an ideology, right? And I think it is so current that it still has meaning today when we are talking about fake news, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that monument still has that important meaning today, even so, so uh, we can sometimes separate the men from the overall purpose that they were talking about, right? So for that reason, that monument is still um, important today. Absolutely. Um, any final thoughts, either of you? Are we, I don't have any other questions. Sherry did mention that she is writing a narrative of her family history of her third great-grandfather who served in the Civil War and its immigration. Recently, I've been researching his name, Laborious, who is named after St. Laborious. I found all sorts of Catholic churches and place names from Germany in Illinois and Missouri. Um, great to hear that you're, you're writing a family history. I think that that's so important. Yeah, if, if we didn't say it, we should. Thank you to everybody, one who's listening um, and or reading along, and uh, especially thank you for listening carefully and sharing comments and thoughts and questions. Um, Absolutely. And really, that's what this is all about. Um, you know, I'm the author, but not the author of this publication. It's it's an ongoing work. It's a dialogue, and uh, you know, as Petra pointed out about that statue, it's it's a reflection of you know, an ideology at one particular time, but um, humanity has asked us, what does it mean today? What, um, okay, so how do we interpret that? And that's really what this, this whole effort is. It's an interpretive effort, what uh, historian Henry Steele Cominger once referred to as the search for a usable past, what still speaks and resonates today. So hopefully, we found something here today that that resonates. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, again, for the comments, um, yes, those those personal anecdotes are, are 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 more important, I think, than our our speaking at you um, because it it brings this to a very real place, um, you know. And and I, I hope that those of you that are joining us today. Continue to join us on the rest of this series. Um, it's, I know it's it's crazy to think that this is going to take us through April because some of us can't even plan till next week. Um, but you know, in this ever-changing environment we currently live in, but um, the goal is to keep this going monthly through April. Our next uh, next chapter in this series will be Thursday, November twelfth at ten a.m. That chapter is Chapter Three: Oh, Brave New World, and we will dive into. Um, a lot more talk about the immigrant history of Missouri um, and the inspiration and, and the stories behind that. So um, I don't yet have a special guest for that chapter, but we will get back to you. And, uh, and I'm sure it'll be another great discussion. Um, Arthur and Petra, thank you so much for your time. Um, you'll see Arthur again next month. Um, Petra, good luck I'll be right you. here, actually. <laughs> I, I won't move. Exactly. Same here. Um, so thank you again so much to both of you and to our attendees. Um, please thank you again, me. Petra. Sure, anytime. Petra, it's good to see your face or an image of your face. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you guys want to hear more about or learn more about uh, this program series, if you need to purchase the book, um, or if you want to learn about more events with Missouri Humanities, um, visit mohumanities.org or follow us on Facebook and that Facebook page is Missouri Humanities Council. Um, thanks again so much. Keep an eye out for that program survey for chapter two um, and hopefully we see you all plus more next time. Thanks everybody. Have a great day. Bye. <laughs>